Old Testament lesson today is found in Isaiah chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 5, and then once again in chapter 4, reading verses 2 through 6. Listen carefully to God's word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy and there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come and confess that your word is a lamp unto our feet and that your word is a light unto our path. And we ask that by your word, this lamp and this light, that you'll lead us to your holy hill, to your dwelling, that we will hear your voice, that you'll lead us in your truth and that you'll teach us. Make your face to shine upon us today, O God. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several weeks ago, Melissa and I had the opportunity to attend our 25th anniversary at, or not anniversary, 25th reunion at Furman University. Members of our friend group traveled from across the country, uh, particularly to attend one dinner party on Friday evening. Before the party began, my friend, the host, entrusted me with the task of preparing the bonfire for the evening. It was to be an after-dinner celebration. Easy enough. I arranged the kindling and the paper and stacked in the wood properly and then lit the fire. The only problem was that the fire just would not go. (laughs) The wood was not wet. I really had no explanation. I felt like my man card was about to be called. After several iterations of going out to the fire pit, fixing it, and then coming back in and learning that it was once again extinguished, I thought I was in trouble. But the fire just continued to sputter along. It just wouldn't go. 
After dinner, we went out to the fire pit where we were to warm ourselves by the fire. It was an alleged fire because there was no fire. It was at this point that the host graciously noted something. You see, the fire pit was one of these new solo stoves, if you're aware of these. And they typically offer a very warm and relatively smokeless bonfire experience. The stove works on simple principles of airflow. Critical to the system of airflow is the flame ring. If you've not heard of a flame ring, you're not alone. I had never heard of the flame ring. But the flame ring is the piece that sits on the crown of the fire pit. And it particularly conducts the airflow. And as our host sat down, he noticed that the flame ring was improperly installed. That it was upside down. And given this, when the flame ring is upside down, if you go to the product website, they will tell you the fire pit, the solo stove, will not work. It botches up, clogs up all of the airflow. All the vents were blocked, cut it off the airflow. The system is entirely useless. Starved of oxygen, the fire dies every time. And as we climb into the prophet Isaiah over the next few weeks during the season of Advent, we'll find this principle is true. It's true with the fire pit and it's true with the church. That Isaiah ministered to the Old Testament church during a period of decay and decline, 600 years before the advent of Jesus. And starved of God's word, The church sputtered along in contradiction and in compromise. The very oxygen of the church, that which animates God's people, the word of God itself was being ignored. The church was indifferent to God's law. That law which revealed God's gracious promises what he had done to rescue Israel out of Egypt, what he was going to do through Israel for all the nations of the earth, all of those gracious promises they ignored, and also the gracious precepts, the wise precepts of God that he gave to guide his people in a response of gratitude. So the major question is, in the midst of all of that contradiction and in the midst of all of that compromise, what exactly did God do? He sent a prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah's task, you could say, was to rearrange the flame ring. That oxygen would once again stoke the fire. That the very lifeblood, the very essence of the spiritual community, the church, would be restored. Through the prophet, God seeks to awaken the church And he seeks not to simply awaken the church then and there. This is not an ancient word that doesn't apply to us. But through the prophet, he also seeks to speak to us here and now, directing us to hear his gracious voice, to prize his promises of redemption, what he's done for us in the new covenant forged in Jesus Christ, and also his gracious precepts to direct our lives. And so this morning, we step into Isaiah considering an early prophecy that runs from chapter 2 
through chapter 4, verse 6. The entire is whole. And in order to do so, we'll ask and answer a very simple question this morning. What exactly do we hear from God when we attend to his word? What is it precisely that we hear from him? And as we read, three things that we'll hear from him this morning. First, a word of consolation. Second, a word of correction. And third, a word of comfort. And so let's look at each of these this morning. First, we hear a word of consolation. In chapter 2, in verses 1 through 5, Isaiah begins with this word of consolation or a word of hope by speaking of something that will come to pass in the latter days. The latter days referring to some future time yet to be determined. He explains in verse 2 that on those latter days, in those latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and that the mountain of the house of the Lord would be lifted up above all the other hills. This is a proclamation of the ascendancy and the victory of God over all the idols and pretenders who claim to have divine authority in the world. All the idols of the nations would be brought low. Three things then follow this exaltation in Isaiah's vision. First, Israel becomes a place of pilgrimage for the nations. Isaiah says that all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say these words. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Isaiah plays with our sense of what is proper and appropriate in the world because he says the nations will flow up the mountain. Streams and rivers don't flow up, and yet this is the imagery he uses that the very forces of nature would be reversed and God working supernaturally to gather the nations, men and women from every tribe and tongue, to gather here at Mount Zion. They would be united in one common faith. This is not a vague spirituality. It's not a common respect for human brotherhood, but it's a commitment to the God of Jacob, to this particular God, this God revealed in Israel, further revealed in Jesus Christ, manifest to the nations. But it's a place of pilgrimage. But second, we learn on that day that God's word, his law, will be a fount of revelation for all those nations. As those nations stream up to Zion, they come and they say that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his past, there's a desire to learn from him. But not only do they come to Zion to hear the word, but then this word goes out from Zion to all the ends of the earth. This is what happens on that day when the mountain of the Lord is exalted above all others. And third and finally on that day, we see that God will establish peace and justice throughout the world. He'll end all enmity. He will end all rivalry, and he will end all hatred. In verse 4, we read, He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, 
Neither shall they learn war anymore. The promise is beautiful. That God will eradicate the means of war. Beating swords into plowshares. He'll recycle all those instruments and make them useful. That God will eradicate the exercise of war. That God will eradicate even the need to train for war. These implements will no longer be necessary because the nations will be united before God, one common faith, and the nations will have a transformed heart that hates and remembers wrongs no more. The world is changed in Isaiah's vision. And friends, this is the word of consolation. It's the word of hope that we hear. It's a word spoken not to a church at that time building on a steady stream of progress. Things weren't just getting incrementally better each year, just as we wouldn't say they are now. But this is a word spoken to a church in decay and in ruins as a promise made to a church mired in trouble. It is this promise that our Lord Jesus comes to fulfill. It is this very vision that Isaiah shares that Jesus comes in fulfillment of, that he comes to be lifted up above the nations, uniting the peoples of the earth from every tribe and tongue, bringing him into one household of faith and bringing peace amongst the peoples through the blood of his cross. It's important for us to note that this language that we find in Isaiah chapter 2 of the, the mountain of the Lord being lifted up. This verb lifted up is a curious one in the prophet Isaiah. He uses it throughout the book. And the apostle John picks up this same verb in John chapter 12 and verse 32. And there, Jesus, speaking of his crucifixion, says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And Jesus curiously takes the most humiliating moment of human experience, public desecration of his body, his very public execution. And he says that this is the great moment of the lifting up of the glory of God before all the earth and the exaltation of God's name is found in the greatness of his willingness to die for the nations. And friends, this is the New Testament's reading and spiritualization and understanding of Isaiah's great beautiful promise that the mountain of the Lord would be lifted up and exalted above the nations, that that has been fulfilled in the death of Jesus on our behalf. And it is through that death that the nations are healed. It is through that death and in his resurrection that we are renewed and hearts are transformed and there's no longer the need for war. It's in a broken world torn apart by war and intrigue that we desperately need to hear this word of consolation. It's in a broken world filled with injustices and wrongs that never go seen and never get righted that we need to hear this word of consolation. It's in a broken world littered with death and disease that we desperately need to hear this word of consolation. No, not a word spoken then and there to an ancient people, but here and now. And in these latter days, 
the fulfillment of our Lord Jesus Christ, making these things sure and certain for us, and we desperately need to receive that consolation because the challenges are deep. And friends, so hear that consoling word of God spoken to you today. All that is ours through the gospel, through the coming of the Son, not just promises of forgiveness, truly that, but promises of a world healed and renewed, united as one family before God, transformed in nature. A word of consolation. Second, we also hear a word of correction. The prophecy does run from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 4. Bracketed on either end are glorious visions of hope in 2, 1 through 5, and then 4, 2 through 6. But they are the longer sustained portion of the prophecy that we did not read for the sake of time. It's found from 2, 6 all the way through 4, 1. And it's there that we have two sections in which God addresses the church as to problems that were alive within her. And he details those problems. The first section in chapter 2, verse 6 through 22, details the church's failure to love and trust God above all others. As you follow along in verse 6, you'll see that the problem was is that God's people chose to conform to the world. And Isaiah says that they were full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. Rather than being differentiated from the world, they had become like their neighbors. They were not differentiated. Rather, they mimicked it. In verse 7, we see that Israel was filled with silver and gold, and there was no end to their treasures. This amassing of wealth was particularly criticized because of what the wealth was used for. If you look in the second half of verse 7, you'll see that it was used to multiply horses and chariots. This has to do with the same critique we saw in First and Second Kings, that the kings of Israel were using the wealth and taxing the people in order to gain a security for themselves, multiplying horses and chariots against the prescriptions of God's law. What they were attempting to achieve was what was wrong. They were attempting to achieve an alternate means of security rather than entrusting themselves to God. And then in verse 8, we see the final critique. That God's people were busy inventing their own gods, bowing before what they forged in their own minds and crafted with their own fingers. The great shame of the church that was unfolding at that time is that they were not without a God. They had not departed from spiritual needs. But the shame was the only God they would submit to was one that they can control themselves. That is, they would only submit themselves to a God that they had forged in their own mind. One that cooperated with what they thought was right. One with provided, who provided things that they feared. Friends, we will always have a God, but we will only worship and serve that God of our own design who co cooperates with what we think and what we want and what we will. 
And friends, if your God can never contradict what you think, if your God can never confront your actions, and if your God can never challenge how you conceive of him, then we have to question whether we really have a God or not. When we have forged him with our minds, this is the only God we will ever conceive of. One who always agrees with us because he's nothing more than a projection of ourselves. And here the prophet Isaiah confronts this community who had forged this God in their own image. And we have to hear the critique and the concern again. And unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. Chapter 2 runs through developing these notions of Israel's problem of conforming to their neighbors, of their amassing of wealth for security, and of their idolatry. And then in chapter 3, in verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1, the second section begins where the church's failures as a community, especially the failures of the leaders morally, there is injustice and immorality. There is pride and there is prejudice. There is apathy and hypocrisy. There was a lack of concern for the community. And this is the simple lesson that corrupt religion gives rise to a corrupt community. Forsake the love of God, the first table of the law. And you will shortly and thereafter forsake the love of neighbor. And friends, this is God's correction of Israel. It's what our Lord Jesus tells us in the two great commandments. That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. And that there's a second commandment like it. That we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we don't fulfill this command in order to achieve something with God and to climb up a ladder into heaven. But rather, this is the response of gratitude for those who have been adopted by God's mercy and grace and brought into his family, then we gladly submit to these two great commandments, knowing that they bring life. And so, friends, we want to receive the correction and knowing it comes from a gracious and a merciful God and to hear him guiding us into the way of life. But finally, we also hear a word of comfort in this, prophet, in this prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy ends in chapter 4, in verses 2 through 6. And it's there in these verses that Isaiah promises a day. He has referred to the latter days, and now he simply says, in that day, referring to that final time. He says, and in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The branch of the Lord, as we work through Isaiah, we will see, refers to one singular person. It refers to a promised son of David who was to come, the anointed one, who would bring to fruition all of God's promises and purposes for Israel and for the world. He is none other than Jesus in the fulfillment of the New Testament. And in verse 3, as we work through chapter 4, we learn that in that day, when the branch is beautiful and glorious, on this day of Jesus' second advent, that those who are left in Zion, that those who have faith in Jesus, will be called holy. In other words, 
you will not be labeled by your sins. That God will not judge you and account for you by what you have done. That God will not judge you by what you have left undone. But rather God will render another judgment about you. And it's not based on what you have done at all. It's based on this branch that's called glorious. This branch that's called beautiful. That God will render the judgment that you are holy because you find shelter and you find shade underneath that branch. In verses 5 and 6, we see the imagery continues, where we find all the imagery from the Exodus. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, God's presence among the community, a booth for shade from the sun, a shelter by night. And friends, this is the promise of God. It's the gracious promise of his presence with his people. And it's the promises of his forgiveness, of his grace and mercy to remember our sins no more. And so this comes as a word of comfort to those in the midst of a broken world who participated in all of that broken world's rebellion. And friends, this is what we desperately need. We need that great comfort of the church. Despite all the pride and all the arrogance that lives within us, despite all the indifference and all the apathy that we can display, that despite all of our faults and all of our failures that we can't count and we can never number, that our God will return for his own that he will be our light, that he will dwell among us, that he will be a shelter and shade for us from our own rebellion against him. And that he's done that through the glorious and beautiful branch, Jesus, who came to suffer in our place, to receive the judgment that we deserved in order to give us his righteous record, his holy record, that we can share in that. And friends, this is our one comfort in life and in death that we belong to him irrevocably because it's not based in you, because it's not rooted in your performance, but it's rooted in what Jesus has done. And Isaiah says that this beautiful and glorious branch, that he comes for everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, pointing to that great mystery That before the ages of the world, God set you apart for himself. That it is these that Jesus comes for. And he will surely come. And though he is long in coming, he will come. And it's the greatest grounds of confidence that you can have in this life. And so friends, as we come to the prophet Isaiah, as we come to the season of Advent... We come for a word of consolation, a word of hope in the midst of a world gone very wrong. We come for a word of correction because we know that we participate in that wrong and we must remain supple before God and be directed and humble before him. And we come for a word of comfort because in the midst of that correction, We have a gracious and a merciful God who has sent his son, who has been lifted up above the nations for us. 
has given himself for you, has laid down his life for me. This is the greatness of this God who's been exalted. And it is through faith in him that the nations come and share in this unity and share in this transformation, this vision of a new world. And so come to him for that consolation. Come to him for that correction. Come to him for that comfort. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of our world, in the midst of all of its weariness, in the midst of its fatigue, in the midst of its rebellion, in the midst of its selfishness, we come to you. And God, we come asking for consolation and hope, that you revive our hearts, that you renew us in the vision of things that are to come, things that have been secured for us in the death and the resurrection of your son. We ask God that you give us the courage to hear your corrections. And we ask God that you fill us with all comfort, knowing that we belong to you and that you have called us holy, set us apart for yourself, that we belong to you in the glorious and the beautiful branch, our Lord Jesus Christ. Fill us with hope in all believing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.